The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. It's good to be back on the pulpit. Um, when I found out that I was preaching this message on transgression, uh, I transgressed. <laughs> But then I realized that I am the one who is largely creating the preaching calendar. So I have no one to blame but myself. Um, Back in 2020, when we were putting together this 21 calendar for preaching, um, I ended up blocking out this whole kind of time in February uh, into March, uh, anticipating some speaking engagements in Hong Kong, as well as uh, a meeting down in Texas. Uh, But then COVID ended up canceling all of that, kind of wiping out my entire travel calendar uh, for the foreseeable future, actually. And so I've been actually thankful for this four weeks that I've had to be able to focus on some other areas of ministry here at ICC that are generally really hard for me to address uh, when I'm having to preach every weekend. And so I'm really thankful for that. I'm also really thankful for the wealth of really great preachers that we have here at ICC, which enables me to take breaks like this from preaching, um, knowing that we're still going to get solid biblical teaching. And so in some ways, I feel almost a little uh, selfish about it to think about how many preachers we actually have here at ICC who can do a very good job here at the pulpit. Um, Next, uh, over the next few weeks, we are going to be wrapping up this Bible Project series that we've been doing for about six months now. We'll uh, have the final message on Easter Sunday. And then after that, as I've been announcing, we're going to launch into a new series that's going to probably take us well into the remainder of 2021 on the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Jesus taught in Matthew 5 uh, through 7. Uh, Join with me in a word of prayer, though, as we look at this message on transgression. Father, as we approach the Easter and Good Friday uh, celebrations and um, think about what it means to actually celebrate and observe those holidays, we pray that we would have a deep and biblical understanding of sin so that we can understand the problem that was being addressed on Calvary and opening up our eyes to see the riches and the depth of your grace and your mercy extended to us through Christ on his cross. And so now as we look at this topic of transgression, open our eyes to understand um, what is going on inside each of our hearts and what it is that you have come to do to heal us from every one of our diseases. As we pray this in Christ's name, amen. In 2010, Uh, performance artist Marina Abramovich uh, did this extended performance at the Museum of Modern Art, which is better known as MoMA, uh, out there in New York City. And it was entitled, The Artist is Present. And in this performance piece, Abramovich simply sat in a chair for eight to ten hours, solid. She didn't even get up to go to the bathroom. Uh, Over a period of three months, where she would basically simply make unbroken eye contact with whoever wanted to sit in the empty chair that sat across from her. The museum curators thought that this was a ridiculous idea, 
they felt that no one in New York City had the patience or the time to sit in a chair and stare at this artist. And so they thought it was going to be a flop, that this was going to be a failed exhibit. But as word of the performance spread throughout the city, um, at the moment that the exhibit launched, uh, long lines began to form at MoMA as people wanted to sit across from Abramovich. And at first, most people just kind of did this for fun. They just wanted to be a part of the exhibit, part of the experience. But as time went on, you began to see a deeper, more intimate connection forming between artist and audience. And by the time that that three months performance was over, it was surprising how many people wept openly as they looked into Abramovich's eyes. Abramovich herself was often moved to tears as she looked into these strangers' eyes. And as you look through the images that were captured during this performance piece of these encounters, you sense the longing and pain behind many of these tears. And toward the end of the exhibit, people were camping overnight just for the opportunity to look into Abramovich's eyes. And I, I wondered, what was it that they were hoping to experience? What, what did they hope to see when they sat in that chair and looked at her? Abramovich believed that she was acting like a mirror, giving people a glimpse into their own souls as they stared into her eyes. And I think in many ways that performance piece was symbolic of the human condition in a broken world. Everyone longing for connection and love. And yet sadly, what we experience all too often is loneliness and alienation and brokenness. We're closing this series on the Bible project that I just said at the introduction. And we're doing so with this mini-series on sin. The Bible's portrayal of sin, as we've already seen, is far from simplistic. It uses a whole range of words and images to capture the full breadth and complexity of sin's impact on our lives. And although the main focus today is going to be on this word transgression, or pesha in the Hebrew, I'm going to be doing a little bit more of an extended review of the other terms that we've already looked at through Pastor Peter's messages uh, on sin as well as iniquity to draw out some common themes and see if we could try to tie a lot of this together. Pastor Peter began the series with the exploration of the most common word in the Bible for sin, which in the Hebrew is kata, which literally means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. This idea of missing the mark is usually couched in a bigger story, and the story sort of goes like this. There is a holy God who has given us his holy standard by which we will be judged. And the problem, as the Bible lays it out, is that we all fall short of this holy standard. And so because of that, Jesus came to the earth to deliver us from the judgment that we would face by ourselves. And he did this by dying on the cross for our sin. 
And all of that is true. But what I also want to say is there is more to the story than that. If we want to truly understand the nature of our fallenness and the redemption that God has brought into that creation. It's strange, but you can tell the whole story of humanity's fall without even asking this critical question. What is the mark that we have missed if sin is missing the mark? We, we can just totally gloss over that question as if it's an irrelevant detail in the story. As if the mark was some kind of an arbitrary target that God made in order to trip us up, giving him just cause to condemn us. And as I've repeated throughout this Bible Project series, the mark that we've missed is the abandonment of our calling as God's image bearers to live in loving fellowship with him and with one another, ruling with him over his creation. That is the mark that everyone in humanity has missed. And it's an absolutely critical detail to understanding the story of sin and redemption. As Peter pointed out in his message, the, the, the world as God intended it is captured in this word, shalom. And the rough translation of it in English is peace. But the full meaning of shalom can't really be captured in a single word in the English language. He referenced Cornelius Plantinga's book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And I want to uh, read a quote from it as well, because I think Plantinga does a really good job of helping us to understand what was at stake in sin entering our world and what it is that God wanted of the world that he created, that he is fighting to reclaim. Plantinga writes, Once we possess the concept of shalom, we are in position to enlarge and specify this understanding of sin. God is, after all, not arbitrarily offended. God hates sin, not because it violates his law, but more substantively, substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior open doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. It would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children, Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. Then, with good humor all around, the person who more, more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern Dakota, North Dakota at Hoople. It's not a real university, okay, just if you don't get the reference. And would seek to learn from them. 
all around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call to each other about them. In sum, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. Planning a paints a vivid picture of a world in which shalom reigns. The world, as he says, as it is supposed to be before sin entered. But as you and I know, this is not the world that we experience today. We live in a world actually filled with fragile marriages and insecure children who grow up to become insecure adults. And rather than celebrating our national and ethnic diversity, we use our diversity to fuel racism and hatred and mistrust of others. Ours is a world in which the name of your school that is on your diploma tells you what you're worth. Our newspapers are not filled with stories of moral beauty and courage, but of wars and crimes and other tragedies. And as much as we feel victimized by all of this, each of us is in fact a contributor to this vandalism of shalom. Even as we feel abused by others, we ourselves become the abusers. Isaiah 53, 6 puts it succinctly, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. As Plantinga points out, our fall from grace is so much deeper than just failing some arbitrary test that God set up for us to see if we are worthy of going to heaven or not. In other words, to miss the mark is to reject God's leadership and wisdom over us, choosing instead to live by our own wisdom. And rather than embracing a life of shalom that God offers us, we choose to live life on our own terms, which sadly is the cause of so much of the pain and the suffering that we experience in our world today. Because our wisdom sees more hope in the false promises of our idols than in the real promise of God for the blessed life. Our wisdom tells us to do whatever we need to do in order to get ahead in life, to seek our happiness at the expense of others, and to put ourselves first above everything else. This is what it means to miss the mark. It's as if we have missed the whole point of life as God intended it to be, experienced by his good hand. Another common word for sin is avon, which literally, which translated means iniquity usually in the English. It refers to our inclination to take that which is straight according to God and perverting it, twisting it, or distorting it, bent out of shape, morally speaking. Iniquity is often associated with this idea of corruption and injustice, 
Isaiah 59, 2-4 says, But your iniquities, your avon, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They reply, they rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. The iniquities that separate us from God are all centered around this perversion of what God has declared good. And so as the prophet Isaiah uh, explains here, he says, they pervert peace with violence against the innocent. They pervert, pervert truth with their lies. They pervert justice with all kinds of acts of unjust treatment against others. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 says, Now this was the sin, the avon, of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Just as we saw with that word kata, ultimately, iniquity also is a perversion of shalom itself. In other words, rather than seeking a life of flourishing for everyone by caring especially for the least among us, the perversion of sin leads us to neglect and even abuse the weakest and most helpless in our society. Rather than a posture of generosity as shalom dictates, sin leads us to embrace a mindset of scarcity. Life as a zero-sum game. In order for me to win, you must lose. And it's not just that we have failed to meet God's standard. But what this particular word iniquity implies is that we have replaced God's standard with our own twisted and perverted standard and declared that to be the truth, that to be what is morally right, which causes untold damage in any hope of recovering from a sin like that. Isaiah 64, verse 6 to 7, says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins, our avon, sweeps us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have given us over to our avon. Our sins. In other words, what the prophet Isaiah is saying is that we have distorted and twisted everything in our iniquity. In a way, what that has done is it tainted everything that we do so that even what appears to be outwardly righteous acts, the motives of those things have to be questioned. Because there is this globalizing effect of our sin that sort of taints everything because of the crookedness of our heart, morally speaking. Well, now we come to the third word, pesha, that we just saw featured in that Bible Project video. Pesha is most translated, most commonly translated as transgression or rebellion. But I think that picture says a thousand words, okay? If you want to know what pesha is, that's pesha. To transgress is to betray a relationship. It is to break trust with someone. It is to cross a forbidden boundary. And as the video pointed out, if you steal from just anybody out there, 
that's just labeled in the Bible as robbery. But if you steal from a neighbor or a friend or a family member, then interestingly, that act, that crime becomes pesha, transgression. Because in that act of stealing, you have broken trust with someone who had the expectation that you would never steal from them. That's why when Laban accused Jacob of stealing his household idols, as we saw in that video, Jacob attacks back in Genesis 31, 36. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my peshaw? What is my crime? He asked Laban, how have I wronged you that you hunt me down? You see, peshaw is a betrayal among friends, among family. And the most frequent use of the word peshaw is in reference to Israel's relationship to God. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Rid yourselves of all the offenses, all the peshaw you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? To call Israel's sins peshaw implies that there is a prior understanding between God and his people, outlining what was expected in their relationship with God. And interestingly, pesha is also used to describe the relationship between the rich and the poor. Amos 5, verse 12, For I know how many are your peshaw, and how great your sins. That's kata. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. In other words, what the prophet Amos is saying is this. When the rich use their wealth to take advantage of the poor and deny them the justice that they deserve in court, God calls that pesha. Why would he do that? Well, just like with Kata and just like with Avon, ultimately, Pesha is a violation of Shalom. The world as God intended it to be. In other words, as God's image bearers, we have the God-given duty to offer dignity and protection to the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner among us who have also been made in the image of God. And so when we deny them that justice or disregard their cries of help, in God's eyes, he is saying that is pesha. You, this is a betrayal. You are breaking a trust with someone who has the right to expect more from you in that relationship. And this fits with what I taught a few months back when we looked at the subject of justice, doesn't it? God's focus when he talks about justice is so much more than retributive justice, which is the justice of the judge punishing the wrongdoer. 90% of the time, it is restorative justice. This is the proactive justice of seeking equality and dignity for those who are most abused and vulnerable in society. And this is how God's people behave in a world ruled by shalom. Not just attacking evil when we see it, but by actively seeking the good of others as an expression of God's own love for them and his desire for shalom in his creation. 
This is the same perspective Paul adopts in commanding believers to love one another. Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. It's interesting that he phrases this obligation to show each other love in the language of a debt owed. This is pesha, pesha language. To deny someone this love would be pesha, a breaking of trust of what is understood in that relationship with one another. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love God with everything. That is categorically first. But then utterly unsolicited, he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because what Jesus is saying is these two loves are inseparable. You cannot talk about love for God without in the same breath talking about loving your neighbor. John echoes the same connection in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 19 to 21, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. In other words, the mission of God's kingdom is not only to reconcile us to himself, but to also undo the untold damage of sin that has disrupted shalom and caused so much strife even among us and to heal those wounds through his people as we become the peacemakers and agents of healing in our world. Now, I need to say this. Transgression has another note to it that we have to address. And it is that of what makes it kind of unique among the other sins is that it has a connotation of willful violation. In other words, when you pesha, you do it in a way that's in the full knowledge of what you're doing. In other words, uh, there is really no category as unintentional transgression or unintentional pesha. Pesha is always intentional. Ezekiel 21, verse 24. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you people have brought to mind your guilt by your pesha, which is interestingly translated here as open rebellion, Revealing your sins in all that you do, because you have done this, you will be taken captive. That's why Pesha is so often translated as rebellion, because it is a willful rejection of what we know to be the right thing to do. 
You know, a lot of Christians think that the Old Testament sin sacrifice was supposed to cover all of our sins. But that's actually not true. If you actually look at the law of the Old Testament very carefully, those sin sacrifices that the Israelites offered wasn't to cover all their sins. It was intended really more specifically to cover their unintentional sins. It was to cover sins done out of ignorance when someone didn't realize that they had broken the law of Moses. For example, if an Israelite touched something that was unclean and didn't realize that it was unclean, that's what the sin sacrifice was intended for. Give you a sample of that teaching, Leviticus 4, 27 to 28. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring an offering for their sin, the sin they committed, a female goat without defect. So that's really what the sin sacrifice covers, unintentional sin. There is another category of sin described in the Bible. And the language that I use literally is it's called sinning with a high hand. Picture a fist shaking at heaven, okay? The, the literal wording is sinning with a high hand. And if you have children, you know exactly what that is, right? Um, this is the sin of rebellion. It is done defiantly in full knowledge by the sinner. And what it says about that kind of sin in Numbers 15 is rather different. Numbers 15, 30 to 31. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. This is the picture of somebody who flaunts their sin with an attitude of defiance, essentially showing no guilt, no remorse, no desire actually for any kind of relationship to be restored with God. The answer to this type of willful rebellion against God is banishment from the community of God's people. But this is the uneasiness that I think all of us feel. We know the truth is that even those of us who desire a relationship with God can undoubtedly, at times, sin intentionally. In moments of weakness, we know full well what we're doing, and we still do it. We still do it. Paul says in Romans 7, 18 to 19, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so this raises a kind of a disturbing question. What hope is there then when we know what we're supposed to do, but still rebel and sin? against God anyway. I mean, if everyone was banished for intentionally sinning, there would be no community left to be banished from, would there, right? 
We'd all be living as isolated creatures, floating out there alone. Well, what's interesting is this. When you look at the Old Testament teaching, for that kind of intentional sin, what was their recourse? What was left for them? And you know what it was? It was repentance. It was repentance. David says in Psalm 51, 1 through 3, the great psalm of confession, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my pesha. Wash away all of my avon, my iniquity, and cleanse me from my kata, my sin. For I know my pesha, and my kata, my sin, is always before me. In this great psalm of repentance, David interestingly uses all three words for sin combined in that sentence. And what I think in essence David is saying to God is, I need forgiveness for it all. Because when I look at the full scope of my sin, it's overwhelming what it is doing in my life. All the ways that I have fallen short and missed the mark of the life that you've wanted for me. All of the ways that I've perverted what is good into something twisted and evil for my own pleasure. All of the ways that I've broken trust, betrayed, and intentionally sinned against you and against others. And what David is saying is, forgive me for it all, for all of it. And the wonderful promise that we find in Scripture is that God will forgive us of all of it if we confess our sins. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, and he passed in front of Moses speaking of God himself, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving avon, pesha, and kata. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So he says, yes, there is consequence to your sin, but the mercy of God is so much greater. And he says, for every one of your sins, whether it's kata or avon or pesha, even your willful moments when you know what is the right thing to do, but you just stare right at the face of God and do it anyway. And the message is this, the grace of God is greater. If sin has so many layers, then there is the grace of God to meet every one of them. But you're kind of left saying, but is that it? Is that enough? All I have to do is say I'm sorry and it's wiped clean? Well, not exactly. In the Old Testament, there was this one particular instruction on the day of atonement once a year when the high priest was given this command in Leviticus 16, 21. He used to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and, interestingly, Pesha, rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. 
What the Old Testament law made provision for was what was known as the scapegoat. And once a year, on this poor animal, all of that pesha, not the sin offering, not the, not the kata, but the pesha particularly, was upon this animal. And it was shunned into the wilderness to die alone. And that scapegoat was looking ahead to Jesus because this is what he would do for us when he died on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our Pesha. He was crushed for our Avon. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the wonderful message of the gospel, is that even in our worst moments of defiance, even in those moments when we just didn't even feel like trying anymore and just flaunted at moments our sin, there was the mercy of God to meet us on the cross of Jesus Christ. In his book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, Max Lucado tells the story that he heard in Brazil of a Brazilian mother named Maria who left her rural village to travel to the big city of Rio de Janeiro to go searching for her runaway daughter named Cristina. She spent her last penny going to the drugstore and taking as many photos as she could afford of herself in the photo booth of the drugstore. And then she boarded the bus for Rio. And Lucado writes, Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search, bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was in too many ways too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. She did. This is 
the promise of God. This is the hope of the gospel. Whatever you have done, no matter how dark a pit you think you have dug for yourself, how irredeemable you think you are, what God says is, nothing you have done is so horrible that is beyond the grace of God to rescue you. Even your open acts of rebellion and all of the hatred that you had spewed against me, it doesn't matter. Come home. Cornelius Plantinga writes, God wants shalom and will pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. As the song goes, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. That's the message of the gospel, is no matter how dark your sin is, God's love is greater. Uh, there's one more verse, but because of time, I think I'm just going to stop there. Um, you know, I think the news has been totally dominated this week by this anti-Asian violence that has been happening across our land. These, it's really since the pandemic started, although it hasn't gotten a lot of news attention until the shooting happened in Georgia. And I don't know. Uh, I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. Because this is how the world works, isn't it? This is sin on full display. And I wrestle with what is it that our response should be? And yes, let's, let's defend the helpless. When you, I saw those images of those 80, 90-year-old Asian elderly people being knocked down, I just, it just crushed me. I thought that could be my mother. That could be my father just out to take a walk and being treated like that. And we need to speak out. And we need to advocate for the protection of Asian Americans in this country. But I also think there is a, a greater message here. What Paul said to the Romans, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us represent the shalom that God desires by being the peacemakers, the ones who are willing to turn the other cheek and love even our enemy, and to be the ones that pursue God's justice and righteousness, but most importantly, his shalom. If we have received that love and grace of God, then we are called to be ambassadors of that same love to this world. Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute, but I also want to just give you a moment to pray right now in response to this message. I think the Bible, as I said at the beginning, uh, gives us a very complicated picture of sin. 
It's not simplistic. But it looks at all of the different ways that sin ravages God's good creation. And there's just so much deception upon deception. That's just the nature of sin. That's iniquity, avon, the twisting, the perversion of what God has said as good and true, distorted. And we've all missed the mark. We have not lived to the fullness of the life God intended for us, a life of flourishing, depending on him, trusting in his wisdom. Instead, we trust in our own wisdom. And then there is Pasha, this, this rebelliousness inside all of us that knows the right that we're supposed to do. And yet sometimes with clenched teeth and clenched fists, we just do it anyway. Say, you know what, I don't even care anymore. I don't even really care what God wants. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live my truth. And to all of that, God says, um, there's no place that you can go so far from me that my love will not pursue you. You may not want me in your life, but I want you back more than you could ever understand because what God knows is the life that we want so desperately cannot happen apart from him. So God in his stubborn love chases after us. And as we understand that love of God, he calls us to represent that love to world, a world that is dying and lost. I was just so warmed in my heart uh, to see those pictures from this weekend of some of you who are even in this room today who came on Saturday to help uh, stocking some of the donated items. And I'm just so excited about this pantry that we're starting and what that could mean in terms of our impact in this community. But not just with the pantry, but in all the different ways that God has placed you in places of brokenness and strife and hatred and where all of these things seem to be ruling the day. And I want you to just maybe reflect on how God may want to use you to be his agent of transformation in those places through your own self-giving love that you display to the people in need of experiencing that love. Father, make that true of us. Make us whole by the transforming power that you alone can offer us. God, when we think about our sin, we think about all of the ways that it has ravaged our lives, the things that have consumed us and controlled us and ruled over us, all the false promises that we once lived for, all the lies that we once believed, I pray, Father, that you in your love for us would show us the way through the work of the Spirit to know what you desire of us. Let us know your heart for us. And let that so fill and consume us that it would replace our desire for all competing loves in this life. So we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen going to come to the table now and if you would take the elements that you have there and Christ 
the night that he was betrayed, gathered his disciples in that upper room. And he gave them this bread and this cup. He said, this bread represents my broken body and this cup, my shed blood. So that whenever you reenact that ceremony, he says, do it in remembrance of me. And I think as we think about all the different layers to our sin and all of the things that our heart goes out to, I think as we come to this Lord's table, it's an invitation to be reminded that God alone is the bread of life, Jesus alone. He is the one who can give us the satisfaction of the deepest needs of the human heart. 